Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast, presented by FlickeringMyth.com. I'm your host, Court Dunn. Join us as we talk to writers about their work, their process, and what it means to be a writer. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash writer experience. Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. Today's guest is Finn Kennedy. Finn is an award-winning playwright, teacher, and university tutor whose plays are regularly produced in the UK and abroad. He specializes in writing for youth and marginalized communities and also teaches, blogs, campaigns, fundraises, and dramaturgs, other writers, with a particular focus on young people's projects in London's East End. His plays include Protection, The Hip-Hop Musical Locked In, and How to Disappear Completely and Never Be Found, which won the Arts Council's John Whiting Award, the first time in 40 years that an unproduced script had won the award. In 2013, Finn joined Tamasha Theatre Company as co-artistic director, as well as writing plays. Finn also has many years of experience teaching playwriting. While associate artist at Tamasha, he founded School Rights, the UK's first playwrights in schools training scheme. As artistic director, he has launched Tamasha Playwrights, a new agency of playwrights for hire, offering diverse role models for young people's projects in inner city schools. He writes as an occasional contributor to The Stage and The Guardian. And Finn recently co-founded a new podcast, Out of the Woods, New Plays from the Balkans, which you can download wherever you find your podcast. Finn, how are you? Thank you for listening to me with your bio. That's all right. It was, uh, you've done your homework, I'm impressed. Well done. <laughs> Thank you. I'm all right. I was just, I wanted to start by saying I had my second COVID jab yesterday. So um, if I'm a little woozy, that's why. We're very excited to have you. My first question is always, as you've listened to the podcast before, where are you in the world right now? I'm in St. Albans, which is uh, just outside London, where I've lived for the past 10 years or so. And where I did quarantine and lockdown, yeah, with two small kids who were two and four at the start of it, and now three and five, which is how much time has passed. It was tough. I'm not going to lie. It was tough. But, you know, I had all kinds of other things that came out of it that, you know, will last in all sorts of other ways. So it's, a, it's an interesting time. The world is now starting to open up. From the theatre production world, are things over there starting to open back up? Is there more work for playwright? Tell us yeah. about the landscape right now. It's still extremely volatile and extremely unpredictable. This time last year, time gets has just got so contracted and mixed up but anyway at the start of the pandemic it obviously live theater was just you know completely closed down um and it wasn't at all clear what the government's plan was to kind of to help us as an industry they did eventually come good with a, a rescue package which stopped a lot of venues going bust um but very little of it made its way down to freelancers so it was really about stopping the big organizations going out of business were the ones who mostly rely on box office and, you know, freelance writers, artists, all actors, directors, designers, everybody was basically became unemployed and very little of that funding came through to them, at least in the first round. That started to change a bit. I mean, the tragedy of it is that like any shocks into a system that lives a fairly sort of hand to mouth existence, you know, both by way of like fundraising and project delivery as, as much as, as artists kind of, uh, you know, wages, uh, a lot of people can't survive under those circumstances. And so have had to leave the industry and, and we've, we're losing a whole generation of diverse young talent who aren't from families who, who can kind of you know of means to tide them over during periods like this and i worry that we're losing a generation of diverse new voices 
because the other thing that's, that's happened, of course, is that the venues have um, have come back on stream, but there's so much, there's a huge backlog now. So there's a huge backlog of work, which is just, you know, they feel sort of either got cancelled or postponed, which they sort of feel duty bound to produce. And I can understand that, but it means that no one's really commissioning anything new at the moment. It doesn't seem like. And also, theatre's still so risky. There's still no government insurance scheme. If you get, you know, you, you plough a six-figure sum into getting a show up on its feet and then, you, you know, there's another lockdown, then what? Who can take those risks, really? So it's a very volatile place at the moment. That's the live stage version. I have to say that the silver lining of all this, and, and I think there has been one, particularly for the non-building-based companies like the one I've been running for the last seven years, Tamasha, the touring companies have never been busier. Like, we've sort of temporarily inherited the theatre industry last year. And that's because we've got huge digital programs, education programs, you, you know, stuff that could quite easily shift online of training, you know, writers, directors, actors. A lot of that caused a great deal of innovation throughout the sector, actually, these types of restrictions. We're not the only company to have, have found ourselves sort of never busier, really. Um, and it was partly to do with, you know, well, I've got a great team around me and, and, you know, including some savvy fundraisers who can kind of look for those opportunities. But it's also about how we found ourselves very adaptable as a touring company without the bricks and mortar infrastructure of a, of a theatre building and also ahead of the curve because we were already doing like audio dramas, like you mentioned the Out of the Woods podcast, for example. That was all recorded and, and made, you know, under sort of not lockdown conditions as such, but sort of between lockdowns. Similarly, we, I could rattle off, you know, lots of other projects that we've made over the last year. So it's, you know, it swings around about. So I think theatre, live theatre itself is still very volatile and I don't know what the future holds for it just yet. Then he'll go away entirely. It never does. But I think that well, I do worry that it will become a very, even more risk averse environment than it used to be. But then alongside that, we found other ways, other channels to reach audiences with through, through all the digital innovation that has like necessarily had to take place. So I think that's a good thing too. Before we talk process, I would love to hear your origin story. Did you always want to be a playwright? Do you know what? I kind of did. <laughs> like a strange little nerd child. Or rather, I always wrote stories. I always wrote stories. Um, and they weren't plays at first. They were just, you know, handwritten stories. But like literally ever since I could hold a pen, I wanted to write stories. And I was obsessed with stories. And also how stories work, like story structure, um, has always interested me. It's like I like taking stories apart like a watchmaker takes a watch apart and, and looks at his component parts. So yeah, but they sort of didn't crystallize into playwriting until quite a bit later. So I'm from from a single parent family. My mum was a social worker. I didn't grow up around the professional art, although my mum always loved singing. She wanted to act um, and always encouraged us to be creative and follow those um, ambitions. So I enrolled in loads of youth theatres as a, from age 11. I was kind of, yeah, I wasn't really acting. It was just like loud 11-year-old on the stage. It kind of gave me a certain... Uh, I, I realised that, that there was a certain power in this as a, as a way of telling stories. And as I sort of progressed, this was over kind of years of adolescence through sort of doing drama at GCSE and then A-level, I became more interested in how you, not just acting, which I wasn't very good at or never very good at, but the mechanics of how you put the show together. So I became interested in directing for some time and design and backstage elements as well, technical, lighting, sound. All of those components really interested me. And the more into it I got, the more I realized that actually there was one person really who it all starts with, and that's the playwright, the storyteller. They're at the heart of it all. You know, you can pick up a text, but you're, you're still kind of, and make a show, but you're still dealing with someone else's material. And I just wanted to be, and just fell in love with the idea of that invisible composer of that music coming off the stage, like the whole experience. So I came to it quite organically. Um, by the time I was at university, I, I studied drama and English at Manchester. I was definitely writing plays a lot. <laughs> and I, was one, I won little runners-up prizes in various competitions and stuff. So I kind of got the bug by then. 
But then after you graduate, it's like you don't open the paper and, and like the jobs pages see playwrights wanted. It's like how do you how do you kind of get into this and get paid for it? So I spent the next however many years working that out. Um, all the while kind of working within theatres or on the periphery of theatre. So as an usher, front of house, any office job, backstage roles, assistant stage manager. I worked in various sort of new writing theatres in um, Manchester and London. Did a bit of fringe stuff here and there. But to be honest, I couldn't really afford it. It's a rich kids game. And I was sort of trying to keep body and soul together and whilst working out how to carve out even a few hours a week to write plays. Best skill I learned during um, those early years was in the offices of a young people's company, Half Moon Young People's Theatre in East London. They're still going and subsequently produced two of my first plays for teenagers. But bless them, they, they taught me fundraising. And that was the best skill I ever learned because I managed to raise a scholarship for myself to quit full-time work for a year and go and do the um, MA play, uh, writing for performance at Goldsmiths back in ooh, 2001. And that was a full-time subsidized year to learn my craft where I could really finally kind of put my back into it. And I got lucky in that the, the play that I wrote during that year, Protection, was picked up and produced by Soho Theatre shortly after I graduated. And they also applied for a bursary for me to be their writer-in-residence that year, the Pearson Playwright Scheme, as it was back then, which involves becoming sort of involved with the life of the theatre in, in different ways to just having a play produced. So they did produce my play, Protection, but I also started teaching playwriting there for the first time to their teenage group, which subsequently came to sustain me immensely and become a huge part of my practice. But that's kind of where it started. And now, having sort of had a play on at Soho and professionally produced in a track record, I kind of thought it would be easy <laughs> from there on in. And it, if anything, it was harder because so much of the back then, and I think to some extent still now, a lot of the resources of the new writing theatres are put into sort of breaking the next new big new thing. And once you're not that anymore, once you've been produced, there's a bit of a gap that you can fall into on the other side of your first production where you're kind of not eligible for all those schemes and you're not the, the new young thing anymore, even though I was still only in my 20s. There was a bit of churn, it felt like, at that time of sort of playwrights in the theatre industry. Anyway, I wrote a play called How to Disappear Completely and Never Be Found during this uh, attachment year at Soho. And they decided not to produce it. Here's how broke I was. I printed copies of it off on the Goldsmiths Library, the, the Goldsmiths Library printer, because I got free printing there. And I couldn't afford the postage to post them to all the theatres in London. So these scripts have had to disappear. So I bought a travel card instead and I hand delivered them to the theatres around London because that was cheaper than, than, you know, 20 stamps for a one inch thick script. Anyway, that play was, it didn't make any difference. That play was rejected by every theatre in London. And that totally blew a hole in my finances, age 26. When you're not from a family of means and you don't have any safety net, that's that, you know, because like when you're young, one play, commission fee pays for your time off to write the next play but certainly money buys you time to write i had a cash flow problem so i had to go off and retrain i started doing a teacher training course um teaching a level drama uh, in a north london college not very well <laughs> i should add i'm a big fan of teachers and i love um and work with teachers all the time but um i'm a teacher of playwriting i think not of drama they are different things it was in the middle of that teacher training course that the arts council rang me up to say that how to Disappear had won that year's John Whiting Award, which was one of the... I'd, I'd hand-delivered it to them as well, <laughs> um, and I'd forgotten that I'd entered. It came with a £6,000 prize, so I was able to quit the teacher training and go back to writing full-time. But then I was in this weird position of having this award-winning play, which I had like journalists ringing me up doing award-winning play slips through the fingers of all our new writing houses kind of articles, and uh, no one was going to... It had already been rejected by everywhere. 
And so no one was going to sort of turn around and go, yeah, we know it was quite good. We were wrong. So it ended up at Sheffield Crucible um, because I hadn't targeted, it's all set in London and Essex. It didn't, I hadn't really thought of it, regional venues for it. It ended up at Sheffield Crucible under Sam West, a stunning world premiere by Ellie Jones um, back in 2007, who took it with her to, when she became artistic director at Southern Playhouse, where it had its London premiere. And it's then had this kind of extraordinary afterlife. I mean, I would have been quite happy if it stopped there, but it's like, it's really, it's perennially popular with students and amateurs over here. It's on the Edinburgh Fringe most years. It's popular internationally. It's been on in the USA five times, premiered at Portland Center Stage in 2009 with revivals in Los Angeles with Nancy Keystone directing and also Chicago and Philadelphia. It's among a certain age group. I think it's tap, it's, it sort of taps into something. But anyway, so all of which is to say, I kind of, my origin story is this, was this salutary lesson at a really tender age that you can't rely on the theatre industry, man. And this is something I tell my writing students now, that whole kind of how to disappear story. And there's two lessons that I draw from it. One is that you can't rely on the theatre industry to make a living. So start to think about how else you can use those skills. And that's actually, the answer to that question has hugely enriched my life and work over the years. And the second is that nobody knows anything just like you guys say in Hollywood, just because your play gets rejected by everywhere doesn't mean it's no good. <laughs> you know, keep the faith, never give up. There's a certain bloody mindedness about just sticking it out in the theatre industry and hanging around for long enough to kind of make the breaks come along as much as anything else. But also a sort of bloody minded faith in the quality of your own work, really. And I think not all writers have that. And I see far less kind of confidence and articulacy than me that I've had the privilege to work with over the years. I do wonder how many of them have sort of fallen by the wayside where where I almost did, you know? Anyway, all of this led to directly to having to look outside the theatre industry for work. One of the companies I mentioned before, Half Moon Young People's Theatre, they produced my first two plays for teenagers, which brought me into contact with a lot of schools in East London in uh, Half Moon's networks, one of which was a school called Mulberry, Mulberry School for Girls, which is a state school, a girls' school, which is about 96% students of Bangladeshi Muslim heritage. It's not selective or a faith school. That's just the catchment area. And I did several freelance projects for them. Um, and then they asked me to become their playwright in residence. This was while I was kind of, you know, struggling to um, make ends meet in the theatre industry. I, I signed up for a term, not quite sure what, what it was going to be like. And, and 10 years later, in fact, 15 probably now, I'm still talking to Mulberry and still doing projects with and for them. So my theatre origin story really lies outside the theatre industry. It was really in an East London school who gave me that important early career support where it was literally a part-time salaried job. I was like two, three days a week playwright in residence in an inner city school. And I was doing curriculum support work in like English and drama classes, but also running after school playwriting classes for students and also for staff. That turned out to be really popular as a sort of professional development thing. But probably the highest profile thing I did at Mulberry was I took four plays to the Edinburgh Festival Fringe, one of which won a Scotsman Fringe first in 2009, the first time a school's ever got one. Anyway, there are now like two volumes of, of plays I've got in the shops from that time in my career. And because of the nature of the difference between me and the, those students, I sort of by default had to come up with a whole sort of cross-cultural process about, which I'll talk about a bit later, perhaps during process, about how you kind of leave yourself at the door and, and put your skills as an artist into the service of other people, um, unlike you. Anyway, all of which kind of led me in a roundabout route to, to an associate artist role at Tamasha in 2010 where I started sort of consolidating all of this into a Playwrights in Schools training program, School Rights, for the company, which was Tamasha's flagship education program for a while. And then while I was in the middle of delivering that, the co-founder of the company stepped down and rang me up and invited me to apply for her to become our co-artistic director. 
so that's been a whole other kind of um, journey. I'll sort of stop there because it sort of it stops becoming about just playwriting then, and sort of becomes about being an artistic director and a producer, all of which we'll, we'll sort of get into. But yeah, I've had a very portfolio career to say the least, and only a small amount of it has been in the theatre industry. But I hope that gives you some sense of my origins. As far as process, I would mm. love to talk about what you do because you're doing a lot of different things: playwriting, co-creation, crafting projects. From your words. Can you walk us through what it is exactly what you do? Is it possible to break them down? It's a great challenge. And one I've had to think about, actually, talking to you, which is always kind of interesting. I suppose for me, what am I looking for as an artist? Like, what is the process in aid of? And for me, it's looking for emotional truth or truths, because there's many. I sometimes describe myself as an investigative playwright, a bit like an investigative journalist. Like, I'm not one of those artists who looks inside myself for inspiration particularly i don't write about my life my plays wouldn't be that interesting if i did i'm always drawn to people who've had experiences unlike my own and so the process of getting towards emotional truth in that context becomes a bit more kind of complex and and involved at its simplest it's when i'm writing a play for myself which i'm about something that i'm just interested in even when i'm doing that i would never stop engaging with the world i think I would always want to have a job in a, a school or a youth theatre or any day job will do. I think immersing yourself in the world. I read a lot, especially nonfiction. I'm interested in big theories about our world and our species and what makes us tick and where we're all going and all that homo deus stuff or fascinated by the legacy of colonialism and the British Empire. So The Anarchy by William Dalrymple has been a brilliant read last year and Shashi Thoreau's Inglorious Empire. I like books about big ideas about tech or politics like surveillance capitalism. All these are sort of like brain food for a writer, original thinkers, original thought. I like to meet people. I like to interview people. If I know that I'm writing about social workers, for example, I will literally go and meet 10 social workers and transcribe and record everything they say to me. It's all about kind of empathy and looking for these nuggets of uh, emotional truth in the sifting of this kind of real world material. Visiting resident locations is something I've done a lot of, like whether it's for research purposes, like a children's home or sitting on the end of South End Pier when I was developing How to Disappear, which is an important location at the end of the play. Like I knew that the lead character falls off the end and drowns. And so I sit there listening to miserable music and trying to want to imagine myself into his emotional truth. It's all about sort of remaining emotionally kind of attuned sometimes. And it's about knowing when that strong emotional reaction is kind of leading somewhere artistically original. I remember having a very strong emotional reaction to the missing persons website, um, which inspired how to disappear and the stories of the last time these people were seen. I did a Radio 4 play cycle called On Kosovo Fields, inspired by some songs by PJ Harvey, which I had an intense emotional reaction to, which we all started with the songs. Um, I had to sort of tease out the stories from there. So I have an artistic temperament, and, and so I'm quite impulsive. I trust my feelings and instincts totally. I think that they will lead me to truth, but they will also allow me to put myself to one side and, and give me access and empathy to other people, which is really the other kind of context that this process is, is, takes place in. So I do a lot of co-creation, as you mentioned, of um, over quite long-term collaborative processes, uh, taking like months with young people in a school, for example. And it might just be weekly sessions, just generating fragments, playing, impro, characters, hot seating, moments, lines, locations. It's not so much looking for emotionally strong content in that context because god knows teenagers can be histrionic enough but about sort of artistic originality from 
the community or the age group and originality of thought. As an academic, I'd like to quote Amanda Stewart Fisher, who teaches at um, the Central School of Speech and Drama in London, who talks about the artist in residence is like a temporary shamanistic role. Like you are a shaman, you are channeling other people. And there's a process of leaving yourself at the door and putting your skills into the service of others who might be quite unlike you. And that's very different to the kind of your name in lights version of playwriting. It's actually about clearing your ego and preconceptions. And it's not about you and your voice. It's channeling their worlds and energies and lives and emotional truths. You have to build trust and it takes a long time. And, um, but it's a very, it's a very beautiful co-creation kind of, I think of it as a bit like weaving a tapestry together when it's at its best. And over the years, I've got much bolder and better at that. And about, for example, like not accepting young people's first answers to creative stimuli, which are often cliches, but to say, you know, what else could it be? What else have you got? Pushing and stretching young people's imaginations into more original artistic territory. And I've developed a whole suite of creative exercises um, over the years, writing and improv-based, to kind of stimulate these ideas, character questionnaires, in-role exercises, all kinds of games and scenarios, world-building. But this is all about... Um, gathering fragments so no young person or, or you know community cast member or you know non-professional artist is, is going to hand you a finished play idea what you have to do is kind of keep going back keep revisiting build up their trust make sure they have fun make sure they feel heard make sure that, that the fragments are, are being generated and then you gather those up these fragments from their own imaginations into a kind of tapestry is the best analogy i can find really and what you end up with is something that truly collaborative, which neither of you could have done on your own. And this is, I'm talking about, this has found its fullest form in the plays I kind of co-created with students, which went to the Edinburgh Fringe with Mulberry School. I've since realized its nearest equivalent as a process seems to be some of the sort of collaborative, community-inspired literal tapestries of Grace and Perry, a British artist um, over here who's um, done a lot about Britishness and identity. I'm very inspired by him, although this practice was sort of developed kind of in a separate way before I came across his work. Anyway, and then there's this sort of third thing, which is like the first is sort of writing your own plays sort of on your own, as far as you can. The second is co-creation. And then the third, which has really been the sort of last seven or eight years of my career, has been the process of making new creative projects or bringing those into the world, which don't necessarily involve me as a writer, or at least not of the words, but as a sort of an artist producer, making it all happen. And I'm as much a producer as a playwright these days. And bringing new projects into the world as an artistic director, I've found just as, as creative and, and creatively fulfilling as writing plays of my own. So, I mean, I should perhaps say a little bit about some of examples of those forms. So Tamasha is a, I'm stepping down this year after seven years, it's a touring theatre company with a big artist training program and digital offer. Although we only tour one show a year, there's a whole network of emerging artists, over 2,000 on a mailing list and, and a thriving network of opportunities which we offer those kind of year round. So Tamash is like an artistic community as much as a theatre company. And the challenge for me as a, as, a, as a writer, artistic director, was how to create opportunities for all these exciting young storytellers, but also how to help them become artist producers themselves. So as to have like, that proper agency and not find it so hard as I did starting out, because God knows it is hard and you've got to be really resourceful. So you mentioned already Out of the Woods as an example. So we've just, I've just co-founded a new uh, podcast, Out of the Woods, New Place from the Balkans, which came out of the Radio 4 play that I mentioned um, on Kosovo Field with PJ Harvey and is a whole other story, but it's sort of evolved into a really lovely new vehicle for new stories from an overlooked part of the world, which is the Balkans and audio drama being um, a particularly fruitful way of going about experiencing other worlds and cultures. I love audio drama is like a periscope, like you can pop an audience up in another culture and you're there. It's so immersive. 
So that's an example of a kind of creative project, which I haven't, I didn't write any of the plays, but I kind of, I wrote the sort of the play that gave birth to it as an idea, if you see what I mean. And then I used some of the funds from that, actually. I donated my fee from that Radio 4 project um, to get this off the ground. This, so this is my baby as much as any play I've written, but it's a very different beast, which involves lots of other people and which I intend to be locally owned and is locally owned and led. And we're doing it with a, you know, a Kosovan uh, theatre company. And there's lots of examples like that that I could kind of tell you more about. Things like Taxi Tales, which we did with um, writing bespoke monologues for minicab drivers in Middlesbrough, which ended up on BBC Two. Hear Me Now, which is a kind of intervention in the audition process for actors of colour to get better material that better showcases their range. So they get to create the, their dream character that they know they could get, uh, they know they could play, but would never get seen for. And then we pair them up with a writer to write a bespoke three-minute audition speech in the voice of that character. So the play doesn't exist. There's no, it's all out of their imaginations, but it's, a, but it's, it's using, it's sort of deploying narrative in the uh, audition space to empower historically marginalised actors. So all of what I suppose runs through all of this is, is it's coming back to emotional truth, but it's also the reason that I'm interested in that is because I think in emotional truth lies emotional power, actually. And especially when that involves empowering artists from historically marginalised communities to articulate those truths as powerfully and as humanely as they can. I think that's how you change the world. And that's why I do what I do. The older I've got, I just love bringing new stories into the world and whether or not I've written them is less important, you know? Because at heart, I'm a facilitator. Because before I'm a playwright or even an artist, I'm a political activist. Culture is my chosen arena. And playwriting is my weapon of choice, but I'm a political activist. I'm only interested, really, in the social change which results from any work I write or get involved with. So not having that kind of early Your Name in Lights success uh, in my 20s, although How to Disappear has had its extraordinary life, that aside, I, you know, I actually am glad that the, the, my career took the path that it did because actually... I'm much more interested in taking 10 Bangladeshi girls to the Edinburgh Fringe and changing their lives than that sort of impact. That if, where, In terms of where do you put your skills and, and time and efforts and talents? I'm the son of two social workers. You know, I sometimes like to joke that I'm what happens when two social workers have a playwright. So my process is all about social change. And also, I suppose, about how playwrights as, as artists can make themselves essential to their societies. Like if I was ever to do a, have the time or money to do a PhD, it would probably be in something like that. Because I think, well, it's, it's by enabling ordinary people to tell their own stories. I think that's the simplest way to do it. But there's so many way, forms that that can take. And running through all of this, I suppose, is just a fact that early, when, from when I was a kid, just that as soon as I could hold a pen, just that fascination with storytelling, because it's the language of our species. It's the language of the human head and heart. It's how we make order out of chaos. Like, literally, we are a storytelling animal. Stories are the algorithm of life. So that's my process. It's about how do we deploy stories to make a better world. We have a lot of writers on this podcast. Do you like what writers write? Do you like free stuff? Well, Audible is offering a free audiobook download for listeners of the Writer Experience podcast with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. I recently downloaded James Joyce's Ulysses for my commutes into the city, while our producer Harry, who may or may not exist, has been enjoying J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash writer experience. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash writer experience for your free audiobook.
What's your favourite film of all time? It might be a sophisticated classic, a childhood favourite, or an enjoyable pile of trash you just can't help but watch over and over again. The Pick of the Flicks podcast, hosted by me, Tom Beasley, is all about celebrating people's favourite movies in whatever form they take. Each week, I interview a different guest about their chosen favourite, whether I agree with their choice or think they're as mad as one of Tom Hardy's accents. So tune in to Pick of the Flicks every week on the Flickering Myth Podcast Network and subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Maybe your favourite film will be next. Hi, I'm George. And I'm Sam. And we're from the That's a Classic podcast on the Flickering Myth Network. We both bring three films each from a certain genre and we battle it out to find out which is the ultimate classic. So you can listen to us on Flickr and Myth, iTunes or Spotify. Check out what classic we choose every week. You mentioned the common thread between all things and you mentioned emotional truth. As you know, on this podcast, we are always trying to find a theory of everything, whether it's between different genres of writing or in your case, these three different types of projects that you work on, these different processes. So from a purely process and creative perspective, besides emotional truth, which obviously lies at the core, what are the commonalities, whether it's from the inception of some of the ideas that you're getting, you mentioned social change, or whether it's how you work with other people. Could you walk us through the similarities between all these? Well, there aren't any because they're very, well, I don't know, are they? They're very bespoke processes we're talking about here. So, for example, the emotional truth, which leads to kind of social change or which is inevitably bound up with social change. I suppose it's all about empowerment and legacy and how you go about conceiving of a project from the very start and sort of who is involved and how they're involved and the social issue it's seeking to improve, the artists working alongside the communities, the institutions it will involve, articulating that benefit, raising the money, go, go, go. That's sort of what I'm do as an artist producer now but each one's different the idea of coming up with a platform to showcase new plays from the balkans was a very different process to kind of doing a 10-year residency in a school which which sort of left a, a legacy of an alumni theater company which you know is kind of going independently of me i've got a bunch of kind of creative tools in my back pocket for these processes any of which i can deploy in any given circumstances and a lot of which i teach and pass on to other facilitators these days but each one's bespoke and it's really a, about a process of just sitting and listening to that community or if it's not a community led or, or partnered project then what is the, the sort of emotional and social significance of, of this impact this artistic impulse and how can you get this project to be sort of born into the world in the way that will have the maximum positive social impact i guess and quite often for me, that doesn't involve 200 rich people watching it in a theatre. It involves doing stuff in an East London classroom or in a former conflict zone and helping them make podcasts. Or I call it Applied Stories. And in fact, that's probably going to be my next venture, AppliedStories.co.uk. I actually bought the domain name literally yesterday. Because if there's one thing I suppose that would sum up the common thread, it's the application of stories for social change. Because stories can change the world in so many different ways. I really do believe that. And we see it every day in on the news. We're like, politics, it's just a load of stories, right? It's just a load of stories. True or not, doesn't matter anymore. It's just a load of stories about who we are, how we got here, why things happen. Religion, it's just a load of stories. Who we are, how we got here. Theatre, or the more obvious story-based art forms, it's, it's much more interpersonal than, than on a kind of grand sort of geopolitical scale like politics and religion. But it's no less powerful. It's that stories are like the algorithm of how we 
or make order out of chaos. And I think that you can deploy once you've just once you can sort of start to unpick the power of that, then you can start to redeploy it in lots of different contexts. And you can empower other people and teach it to them and get them to deploy it in different contexts. And that's what I'm interested in, really. It's in having a very socially embedded, symbiotic relationship between artists and society. That's as kind of as close as I can get, I think. And it's about becoming essential to that society, like they cannot do without storytellers. And they can't, no society can. You know, storytellers are, are, are important in all cultures across the world. Um, so I'm kind of interested in unpicking that and in being part of something that feels kind of millennia old and I'm just a blip in it, do you know what I mean? But this whole sweep of the importance of story to our species, I'm just endlessly fascinated by. I love that. As far as the tools that you mentioned, the creative tools, character questionnaires, scenarios, world building, can you walk us through a few of those? I do a whole workshop in working with the young people and, and it lasts like a day. <laughs> so you're kind of getting into my specialist subject here. And, and with that, workshop goes there's a whole suite of creative exercises which I'm, I'm sort of happily pass on in a kind of open source creative commons kind of way as a pdf so it's really about breaking down so okay so it's break, about breaking down the constituent parts of drama so drama is a three-dimensional art form so not just storytelling so an actor in a space or rather a character in a space so it's looking at the elements so you need character you need location you need action you need time Sometimes objects are helpful. Other kind of elements like inciting incident can be helpful. It's just sort of the grammar of the sort of how to playwriting guidebooks, I think is a, is a useful grammar in the classroom as well. So that I will do exercises focused on generating character, for example. And then the next week we will put those characters into a particular location. And then we will give them, we'll look at giving them a particular action objective. So it's all about just sort of layering up bit by bit the constituent parts of dramatic storytelling and getting young people to sort of understand that from the inside out. So I've got lots of different exercises that speak to different parts of that process, but I'm also interested in getting them to, to teach them those tools so, so that then, I mean, there's an obviously useful classroom-based like academic application in that they can deconstruct Shakespeare or whatever using those tools, but actually they can also start to create, do their own original writing and, and create their own stories and tell their own, present their own lives and have more agency um, through their own writing and then self-represent, which is when I get really excited. I see the power of this starting to be picked up by a new generation. Yeah, it's just sort of a synthesis around the academic side of my work. And I, I do teach all this sort of postgraduate level as much as in schools, synthesized with a kind of the 14-year-old mindset. Like, how do you break that down for a 14-year-old? This is a question that I found endlessly fascinating and inspiring over the years. Everything, every time I try to kind of learn something I, I try and want to learn how to teach it and pass it on. And so a 14-year-old isn't going to go there with you on, you know, Robert McKee's story and whatever. So some of them might, but most won't. And so you have to sort of package it in, in much more sort of play-based forms, I guess. Particularly when you're in inner city schools where you might have, you know, English as an additional language or, um, you know, all kinds of special educational needs. And not to mention, you know, sort of cultural and class differences. And lack of really experience to uh, exposure to, to professional arts in, in, in a lot of cases in these inner city schools. It's about synthesizing what I know of the craft of good storytelling into a very bite sized uh, approach, which allows young people to understand it from the inside out, but then build it back up again. 
So we did a, a series of videos, for example, under lockdown called Bite Size Playwriting uh, for Tamasha, which was um, our writers group fronting five minute videos, uh, each looking at a structured around a different creative exercise. So that's still on our website. That kind of breaks it down a bit more. Um, and I'll probably publish a book on all this at some point. I hope that's kind of enough for a, a, a podcast, at least. <laughs> Finn, I have a few bonus questions I'd love to get to. You mentioned stories can change the world. From your perspective, when you sit down to start a new project, what is going through your minds there? What are the changes you want to make? I suppose I want to see stories, storytelling, and drama. I'm going to say drama because I work across radio and theater and podcasts and anywhere you can tell a story with dramatic narrative. I want to see that fully representative culture. I want to see access to the means of production around how you tell a story and the skill to do that and the physical infrastructure, including the funding side of that. I just want that to be a lot more democratized than it currently is. I think storytelling is a part of democracy and is a, a part of an important essential part of any functioning democracy and everybody having access to the means of how to tell their stories and the platforms to do so really motivates me. I'm motivated by telling stories which marginalized or, or kind of demonized even communities in, in other lights. I like, I like digging deeper than the headlines and kind of finding out the untold stories are the people on margins of society in whatever ways. I, quite often because, not just because I'm interested in empowering them, because I think that that's how you have a healthy society is to reach out and reflect on your own mainstream self, whatever that might be as a nation, as a person, by exposing yourself to others and to their truths. And I think that stories and drama is a rare place where we get to walk a mile in each other's shoes. And I think God knows in this day and age where we're all mediated via screens and social media or anti-social media, as I like to call it, we all could benefit from a bit of liveness and especially god now you know <laughs> having been under lockdown and isolation for so long there's just something very tangible about human connectedness and stories but also stories is how we sort of imagine a better world and a better future like i'm very incensed by the jingoistic nationalist right wing in most countries and cultures so of hijack stories like about who we are as a country in, in the uk around brexit for example that feels like a, a kind of a pernicious national myth that's been, that's, or an, a myth that's been kind of made pernicious, uh, turned to pernicious ends. I think there's a, a wrestling job to do among the, the other half of this country, which are the much more internationalist, progressive mind, you know, sort of liberal in their outlook, to sort of wrest that narrative back about the kind of country we are or, or could be. So I'm interested in stories and Justice, stories and truth, stories and empowerment, stories and democracy. Stories, man. They're just, we're the storytelling animal. There's no part of human society that doesn't function without stories. And I guess I'm just interested in working out how to harness that power for good. For those writers who are listening who are maybe struggling with finding their own emotional truth and those stories of social change for themselves. Do you have any words of wisdom for those who are struggling to kind of find their truth? Sure. I mean, don't be too hard on yourself for a start. Um, I know so many writers who've just seized up. I'm rare. I think I'm in a minority and I found the last year incredibly creatively stimulating because of the restrictions that it's imposed. And I mean, I've been in the lucky position of having, albeit small, but funded and, you know, infrastructure of a touring theatre company to kind of experiment with and, and create work with. It reminds me, I was, I was sort of a really young writer after 9-11. 9-11 happened whilst I was doing my master's degree at Goldsmiths. 
And I remember everybody just coming in and going, well, how do you write about anything that seems to matter after this? Um, so don't be too hard on yourself. It will come and it will take time and it will take can take years. But I think also take yourself out of your comfort zone. That's something that really benefited me. Even if it's just to make a living down at the local supermarket, go and get the day job, but then talk to people, you know, look outside of yourself for inspiration, you know, join groups, immerse yourself in activities, get hobbies, get back out there and whatever sort of interests you don't do it in a bad faith way to find find something that you're interested in and go and explore it with other people is this is all creative it's just about keeping the creative part of you alive i guess and i think um a lot of us feel like it's taken a battering over the last year and and so go easy on yourself it's still there it will come back but it needs stimulating and needs exercising like any muscle and quite often the best exercise is not sat on your own thinking or staring at a blank page and trying to write it's actually getting out there in the world and experiencing it and doing things that don't even seem like writing at the time. But they are writing in the W-R-I-G-H-T sense because we're playwrights, don't forget. We're not writers of words. We are creators of plays. So write like shipwright, wheelwright. They make a three-dimensional thing, the play, the performance, you know, and uh, that is life. The, you know, all the world's a stage and uh, it's really, really true. And just getting outside of your, now that we can, we're starting to be able to, your own confines, whatever they may be. And maybe it's volunteering, going and, you know, rocking up at a community centre. And it's just about gathering the raw materials for what we do again and just allowing yourself the time and space to, for them to percolate and, and for the forms to be found. You can't be forced. You know, some plays you, you can write, I've written a play, a play in a week, you know, with inspiration suddenly strikes. But mostly it takes place over years. I think the longest one I wrote was about, took about 15 years from kind of conception to actual production. So it's a slow burn. Um, and there's a lot, but there's a lot you can do with those talents in the meantime, which will feed your soul as an artist and will also feed the community around you. So I would really encourage um, just getting out there and, and taking creativity out into the world as a way of the world, giving it back to you. There's something very karma about that, I found in my career anyway. Then I have two more questions. The first one is a lighter question. If you could take any writer, living or dead, to any fast food restaurant, which writer would you choose? Which restaurant? You don't have to choose a fast food restaurant. We just <laughs> I didn't yeah. get the fast food bit. I chose a posher one, but anyway. Who would you choose? Which restaurant and why? It's an interesting question. Who, who would I want to have dinner with? I love... There's, 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 writers, there's three or four writers I would name for different reasons. Lorca, Federico Garcia Lorca, the Andalusian uh, Spanish playwright, poet from the 1920s. Aching romance and yearning of his writing I just adore. But I also love it that he ran a rural touring theatre company, both in Spain and in New York when he was in America. So his plays stood the test of time, but they also translate across cultures. Some of Tamasha's early work relocated the House of Bernardo Alba, for example, from a religiously conservative Andalusia to the same in, in rural Pakistan. Blood Wedding inspired another of our plays, Blood, by MTR Hussain, a young writer. I came across this beautiful quote from Lorca, um, which I would get him to read out in our restaurant if I, I ever got him there. He says, The theatre is a school of weeping and of laughter, a free forum where the people can question norms that are outmoded or mistaken and explain with living example the eternal norms of the human heart. I just love that, the eternal norms of the human heart. What a poet. So I'd love to have dinner with him. I'm fascinated by Eugene O'Neill uh, on your side of the pond, um, not least because he, he has the complete opposite process to me, which is he minds he mind himself and his own family, brutally so, for inspiration. Um, and I'm, I'm just fascinated by how he did that 
but also he sort of was, was another one who spent like years out in the world not doing playwriting like he was at sea in the merchant navy or hanging out in dive bars and then he'd write the Iceman cometh or whatever so he, this immersing yourself in the world I, I would love to hear his kind of war stories from that and then another huge inspiration to me is um lorraine hansbury who in addition to being a writer was also a proper political activist who also thought big you know seeing the link between the american struggle for civil rights with african struggles for independence from colonialism for example which was like really pioneering at the time and, and she was a, you know a political essayist and activist as much as a playwright i really admire that and i love her plays i love you know raising the sun and les blancs which had the most incredible revival at the national theater in london a few years ago and then finally rumi the poet who i just find such an exquisite wordsmith his poems are like a hug so i'd invite him lorraine eugene and federico and we'd all go to um well i i didn't know how to be fast food i don't really eat much fast food but there's a gorgeous restaurant in london called morrow which is a fusion of andalusian and north african food which is a very special occasion place but it has a little little restaurant next to it called morito which is a little sort of tapas much more cheap and cheerful version of that which i probably would take writers to actually because you sit on stools and and quaff beer from the tap at the bar and have your tapas much like you would have in Lorca's uh, Lorca's Andalusia so maybe he'd have felt at home there the very last question which we always ask to every writer is if you can choose one learning or insight from your career to pass along to the writers who are listening potentially playwrights what would you say never give up never give up you are better than you realize never give up the world needs you the world needs storytellers and it's one of the hardest things to carve a living at but it's important it will find its expression in your life, whether or not it is your main living. I think just learn to live a creative life, whatever form that takes. For me, it was stories. It is stories predominantly. But I've got two small kids, you know, and I think creativity is the most important thing you can teach kids because there's the only constant in life is change, you know, as we've got all just lived through. And so the only question that really matters is how can you respond creatively to whatever life throws your way in life as, as much as in work. So never give up. Never stop living creatively and never stop believing in yourself as an artist because the beauty, is, as Picasso observed, all children are artists. You know, we're all born artists. It's there in our souls. Um, and sadly, for some of us, it gets sort of, you know, suppressed or sidelined for different reasons. But it's always there and it can always be returned to and it can always be reignited. So keep that fire alive. Love that. And the new podcast that you co founded, Out of the Woods, New Plays from the Balkans is out now and available wherever anyone listening can get their podcast. We haven't talked a ton about it. Do you want to shout anything out? Plug it, talk about um, why people well, should check it out. Sure. Big shout out to my main co-creator, Miran Hadzic, who's a British Bosnian uh, playwright who wrote the first of uh, the three plays that are part of it. Um, amazing audio drama called Fifth Dimension. So, and the other two are um, two completely new voices, which we discovered from radio drama writing workshops in Pristina in Kosovo when I went out there a couple of times and they've written a couple of brilliantly hilarious and um, political satires uh, mostly or comedies. I went out, the irony was that I went out to this former conflict zone with these kind of heartbreaking songs from PJ Harvey who had kind of, you know, I was following in her footsteps as, as um, she was sort of travelled and, and wrote songs inspired by the obviously very tragic um, past of Kosovo and, and the whole Balkans region. That's given birth to this, this whole new generation of voices which don't have that past really in them much at all and, and just want to look to the future and write hilarious political satires or comedies and, and just be artists and like their peers across Europe it's felt like a real privilege to be able to sort of hand that back to to these these writers from the Balkans who get precious few opportunities as it is and I, I hope we'll 
ask this small one will grow and grow and there'll be more where this came from so yeah tune in we're hoping to have we've got to raise more money but we want to do a series two that doesn't that looks at other countries out just not just kosovo so the balkans is a whole family of countries um so we might have a uh, region specific um series uh, at later dates but yeah check it out it's been taking years to get there but we've made our first three and i hope it will be easier from here on in but give us a listen give us a comment give us a five stars uh it'll make us easy easier to raise money to make more love that Finn, did you want to plug anything else? Your own website, your own Twitter handle, anything that um, so people can well, follow I'm you at, or contact you? I'm at Finn Kennedy. Uh, that's one N in Finn, two N's in Kennedy. There's at Tamasha Theatre, uh, although I am leaving. I've also set up a, at Applied Stories, which um, has no followers yet because it doesn't really exist as, other than as a Twitter handle and as a, a URL as of last night. So AppliedStories.co.uk, eventually, if you're listening to this um, sometime in the future, hopefully we'll have some things at it uh, because that's going to be my new company and the focus won't just be theatre, actually. It will be stories for social change. So the social application of narrative, whether it's to empower young people or to diversify a theatre's output or to bring international stories to you know, a home audience or whatever it might be, appliedstories.co.uk is where uh, eventually, <laughs> once I've built my website, you'll be able to find it. And thank you for your insights and your time. We're very excited about Out of the Woods as well as applied stories in your future endeavors. Thank you so much for all the gems. Your passion for writing is so obvious and so inspiring. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for asking me. Like I said, it was an honor and pleasure. Likewise. All right. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks to our listeners. We hope to see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to The Writer Experience. If you enjoyed the episode today, please leave a rating, a review, and a comment on iTunes. You can also check us out on Instagram at Writer Experience and Twitter and Facebook at Writer EXP. The Writer Experience is a Samurai Dinosaur production. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. Music by Kevin McLeod.